Welcome to Behind the Lines here on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. You're with Scotty and we're joined in the studio by Humphrey McQueen, who is a uh, freelance author and historian. How are you, Humphrey? I'm very well, thanks, Scotty. Excellent, excellent. Well, glad to be here pr- promoting the good cause. Ah, very good, yes. A bit of divine discontent, as Joe Hill would have said. <laughs> That's right. And you are here because of uh, a fellow called George Mann and also because of another fellow called Joe Hill. Yeah. Um, uh, can you... Well, George is going to be here in Canberra on the 19th of November, which is uh, tomorrow week. Uh He's doing a tribute concert to Joe Hill, the um, union organiser in the States who was murdered by the copper bosses, as the the song says, exactly 100 years before, on the 19th of November. So we get the tribute concert here, not just in Australia, but on the very day of the anniversary, you're going to be in Canberra, as it's turned out. Wow, that's Uh, pretty special, really, isn't it? So he's touring around. He's done, He's at the moment, touring the US with the the tribute concert. Um, And George, I didn't know about him, but he apparently had been out here four or five times to folk events over the years, so he's pretty well known on the folk scene around here. And a friend of mine in Melbourne went to a concert in the Melbourne Trades Hall in January and said, no, oh, he's coming up to Canberra and he's really great, see if you can get along. And there was a, a gathering, really, at a house in Narrabunda in January. There were about 25 people there. And it was just marvellous. And he said he wanted to come back and do this. And, I mean, George really represents all that's best in the American left. He's warm, he's outgoing, he involves people. I mean, there's no... You know, I'm the star of the event. It's quite the opposite. I mean, he's a, he's a member of the industrial workers of the world still. He'd been a union organiser with the Musicians' Union and the last few years he's been doing that impossible thing of living as a, uh, a freelance muso. <laughs> uh, but he's a real tonic. You know? I mean, he gets everybody involved and he's a storyteller and unlike some folk people and poets, he doesn't talk more than he performs, but he talks <laughs> enough in between to make sense and it really is an education. So the moment he said he wanted to come back, we thought, oh, we'll do something and help to get a bit more than 25 people into a house. <laughs> um, the uh, Woden Tradies and Dean Hall from the CFMEU were delighted to make the space available. So it's out in the Woden Tradies, uh, 7 o'clock uh, on tomorrow week, the 19th, um, and um, George is very concerned that nobody be turned away because they haven't got any money. I mean, that would be very much in violation of the Wobbly Principles. <laughs> uh, but it's 20 bucks. There'll be concessions and, you know, it says for the homeless and the new start $2, but it's really, you know, a coin at the door for people <laughs> at that end. Yeah. And a lot of people already know who Joe Hill is. I mean, it's, you know, it's a widespread attitude and and piece of historical memory. I mean, you don't have to be a left-wing unionist to know about Joe Hill. So tell us about Joe Hill for those who don't know about him. Well, Joe was uh, born in Sweden. His parents, well, his father died when he was very young and his mother died shortly afterwards. He was born in 1879 and he gets tuberculosis, which is very common problem for, well, everybody, but poor people in particular because of bad accommodation and you know, poor diets and things. And it's important to remember that when we think of Sweden today, we think of social democratic Sweden and the welfare state and all that. Well, of course, before the 1940s, uh, that wasn't wasn't like that at all. And if you've seen these um, Nordic noir films and the novels about it, as to how reactionary, the well, I mean, how black reactionary the country was run by these crooks and pro-Nazis and people. So George, when he recovers, does what a lot of people did, of course, which was to go to the United States. A lot of Europeans looking there for work. In 1902, he goes across to the US and again, because he's, while he's enormously talented, he doesn't have any skills that, you know, as, you'd, as they'd be described. He hadn't done an apprenticeship at anything. So he does what a lot of migrant labourers do, which is to work wherever there was work, on the railroads, anywhere across America. So he travels from one side of America to another uh, looking for work, sometimes in mines, you know, all those kind of temporary 
uh, casual work for um, physical labourers. But he gets involved with this organisation called the Industrial Workers of the World. And they are mainly, I'd have to say, made up of people like himself, a lot of, uh, of migrant labourers, uh, because people who didn't have skills who were not part of the craft unions and were sort of kept out because they were foreign-born as well. So they formed their own general union called the Industrial Workers of the World and they organise and agitate and educate, as their, their slogan would have it. And we'll talk about how they proceeded to do that as they came and went, but um, he got... I mean, he ends up in 1915 working at the mines in Utah. Of course, the Mormons are there by then as well, but there's big mining activities going on as well. And on the 19th of November 1915, he is put in a chair and shot, having been convicted of a murder of a shopkeeper and his son. Now, a lot of people have always argued that he was framed. Now, the whole question after 100 years as to what actually happened on the night of the murder, I'm in no expert position to comment on. All one can do is to repeat what other researchers have found and what they would now claim. There was a book a few years ago that claimed to have found documentary evidence of what Joe had always said was that the bullet wound that was in him hadn't come from this gunfight but was a result of a, a fight with another friend over a girl. Now, that was his story. He wouldn't name the girl, he wouldn't name the friend, and he gets very long down the the story. I mean, he's the 12th or 13th person who's brought in for questioning before they get round to him. And whether he was guilty or not, he was certainly framed. And as people said at the time, the reason he was framed was because he was in the IWW. They were being convicted. Uh, yeah, look, I might um, I might just get more of a sense of the times and yeah, sort of well, the, the context yeah. of the time because it's, it's yeah. sort of 1915, 100 years ago. I, yeah, I yeah. certainly wasn't there. No, I don't reckon no, you were either. No, um, no, not. But, um, yeah, you've done a lot more reading about it. So you m- were mentioning there's a whole lot of itinerant workers who are yeah, travelling yeah. about on yeah, the trains well, and stuff. Yeah. And Is that like a uh, sort of a, a, an equivalent of the swagman in Australia? Well, pretty much, yeah. Um, the swaggies, of course did mainly bushwork shearing and things, although when they'd come to town, because the you know the season didn't last all year, they'd get jobs uh, in the building trade. Um, sometimes they'd be seamen as well. Uh, a lot of the IWW, we'll get to a, a story that my father told me uh, about his encounter with the IWW during the First World War. Um, so Swedish seamen, Nordic sailors would come and they'd get a bit sick, you know, they'd get jack of being at sea and they'd come ashore and they'd do some hard physical labour. So that the word rigger on a building site comes from being the rigging in the sea so that you can uh, climb up heights and do, do lots heights, of things yeah, up there. Yeah, okay. So there's this really movement of people around work all the time and you know it's it's you know they're called tramps and bums and hobos and different words for them as they move around the countryside Uh, but they're an essential part of the capitalist system because you know for harvesting for working times you know in places like the united states where you have but you know in in the northeast for example where you have very heavy snow and ice you can't work a building site all the year round. Um, indeed, even in Australia, you know, the building sites tended to close down in the uh, uh, winter months down south. Um, and further north, of course, they closed in the summer because there was too much rain. Uh, so, yes, they are very much that itinerant workforce. Uh, but this gives them, in many ways, a kind of sense of solidarity with each other. Although they don't work together in the way in which if you in those days got a job in a, a factory and you were a tradesman you're pretty likely you'd spend your whole life there and you'd build your trade union contacts with the other men in that air in that factory and they would live in the same street so you had very close bonds which was the basis of working class consciousness and activity for the wobblies the sense of movement and you know they might meet up 
somebody, they might never see them again, but they might see them two or three years down the track. But they knew they had to stick together. They had to help each other on, the, on and off the trains. If they saw the guard coming, they'd protect each other. So they built a different kind of solidarity uh, out of that. But one of the problems they had in getting organised was that they, they didn't have the responsibilities that married men with, with families and permanent jobs had, and they were a bit inclined to say that if you had a job, you were a scab. Um, <laughs> yeah, that they were, you know, they'd take, you know, that's, it was easy for them to go on strike, it was easy for them, you know, they were happy to go to jail because they got a bed and a feed, you know, whereas, <laughs> you know, married, respectable family tradesmen and people just couldn't afford to do that. Uh, so there was a bit of a division. While they were unifying a disorganised part of the working class here as well as in America and other parts of Canada, other parts of the world, um, they also meant that there was this real division between this itinerant group and how they organised and what they could do and what the settled working class uh, was able to do, you know, engineers, you know, tradesmen of, of, of all kinds. So... Those those divisions uh, were certainly certainly there, but they did an enormous job at educating and agitating and organising. Um, they were always on the front line, uh, and they fought political battles, of course, as well as as well as industrial ones. Yeah, so we'll, we'll go back maybe a hundred years again from mm. there, and mm. we'll have a look at sort of the what was there sort of before the industrial capitalist model. What, what did that emerge out of? Well, uh, well, it, it, it largely emerged, uh, emerged in the 18th century out of the industrial agricultural model uh, in England, where what you had done, where the landlords owned the land, which they then rented out to tenant farmers, um, and the tenant farmers either rented bits of it out to farm labourers or to smaller farmers. And that involved bringing large areas of land together uh, it was called the enclosure movement you know uh, they enclosed land and brought it together so that what you had in a sense was the conditions that we later associated with the factory of bringing all the resources together the land the, the, the seed corn or the animals the workers and the capital the money capital and that basis is often seen as the basis for the factory machine revolution that happens in the 19th century. But it's very unlikely that it would have happened without this reorganisation of the English agricultural system throughout the 18th century. Um, you know, in the United States, you've got a different situation because there, after the Civil War, um, and we should put that into our context in a minute too, as to the violence in America, um, there's this westward movement, the homesteading movement of people who went out and we see them in all the Hollywood movies and their wagon trains going out to get 640 acres the government was giving people 640 acres of what they said was virgin land of course it had been used in different ways by the Amerindian populations but they would go out um, and they got effectively free land uh, and they farmed it and these, you know, the sort of family farms out there, and the land was rich. It had never been, although it had been used by, you know, hunting. It had never been farmed, so the nutrient in the soil was much higher level than it was in the old European farming areas. So there was an enormous burst of farming. But by 1900, that exhausted the soil again, and we saw the real end of this during the, you know, the, the 1930s with the you know, with the dust bowl in America as the sort of end product of this. So that by the time people like Joe Hill get to America, there's not really the option of going on the land. I mean, he needed to have got there 30 years earlier to take up a to take up one of these um, selector blocks and go, which is what the Mormons did when they went to Utah. You know, I mean, that was, was how they, you know, what they were doing, wandering around there, uh, as all these different groups were. So what is it that came out of that? What, explain a little bit about industrial capitalism. What, what's the basic structure of it? It's, it is a concentration and a centralisation of, of money and resources. And the most important of those resources, of course, are the workers 
uh, because they're the only ones who add value to the wealth that the natural world provides for them. Uh, the capitalist takes it out, but, but there's nothing that, as capitalist, he puts in. If he gets down with a pick and shovel uh, and works himself, then he's adding like any other worker. But if he's just putting up the money, which he's got from previous exploitation, he's not actually adding anything to this value. So the labour part of it's important, but it also requires when you get more people together, you're going to need more plant, more equipment, more uh, raw materials, more semi-finished goods, all the things that have to to go in. So you get this increasing centralisation of the system so that by the end of the 19th century, you've moved into the really beginnings of a monopolising capital. So instead of having, say, 12 medium-sized firms, you move towards two or three. You know, I suppose Coca-Cola and Pepsi are the two we most obviously think of. Yep, Woolworths uh, and Coles. Well, here we're now to Woolworths and Coles. And, and in Australia, we've got four big banks. But the reason we've got four is because the law says you can't have, you can't merge below that. If it weren't for the law, there'd only be two, and both of them would be foreign-owned. Uh, <laughs> so that's the natural tendency of the system, is to concentrate. And the Deutsche Bank or the Union Bank of Switzerland or somebody... Um, would have bought up some of these Australian banks, as we've pretty much seen with the commercial mass media in Australia. Um, So that anywhere where they get an opportunity to do it, they have to concentrate. They have to get more and more monopolised. Right. So these guys sort of, they just sort of emerged out of this dispersed farming model and wound up with just a whole lot of stuff. I mean, they came... They came on top of these. The blokes on the dispersed farming model were the ones who were really rebelling against them because the people they suffered from were the railroaders who owned the railroads and the big grain silos because they um, used their power and their wealth to exploit these farmers who had to send their grain across the country often to get on a ship to send send the grain to England or Europe to feed people there. But they were dependent on this relationship, often because they were undercapitalised themselves, you know, small 640 acres you know, with a family. You don't have ready cash, so you've got to borrow money every year to get the seed corn. And if you have one failure, you're in, serious, you're in, you're in deep debt for a long time. And the railroads and the banks behind them... Um, uh, also owned the grain silos at the sidings. And this gives rise in America to something called agrarian socialism. Uh, and it's the progressive movement. It's the, the Midwest movement that is anti-imperialist. They don't want to get involved in wars. Um, and they continue to be a, an influence, a progressive... There's a progressive party, in fact, that runs right through... Well, it still exists in a small way. Um, but it runs through as a major influence... Um, into the 1940s um, and so they're, they're the oppositions to the big eastern bankers and the railroad people and the, the Rockefellers in Standard Oil and uh, J.P. Morgan who's the, who's the big uh, banker through this but the way in which you have to, to see that it happens is the amount of violence that's involved in this you know, I mean, we, we don't have to go back any further than the Civil War the popular version that spread around is that the Civil War was to free the slaves. Well, it freed the slaves, but that wasn't the aim. Uh, they freed the slaves in order to win the war. They didn't go to war to free the slaves. Um, and what they went to war for, what, what the North and the West went to war for, was to make sure that they didn't lose control of the South because that would have meant that... England, in particular, would have taken control of the economy, the cotton-growing economy in the south, and the cotton which was going to the cotton mills in the north wouldn't have been there for a start. But also, if the south had separated, that would have meant that all those Midwestern farmers, Lincoln and his friends, uh, would have lost control over the uh, Mississippi because they use that as Mark Twain tells us, to send all their goods south because there were no railroads at that stage. The railroads really come afterwards. So they had to control this for reasons of trade and for industry. So the Civil War, what they 
that the South wants to break away um, and the North and the Midwest has to stop them for economic grounds. And, and, and Lincoln's quite open. He said, you know, uh, if in order to save the Union I'd free all of the slaves, then I'd do that. Or if I could do it by freeing some of the slaves, then I'd do that. If I could do it by freeing none of the slaves, I'd do that. But it is preserving the Union, not as a political unit, but as an economic unit that they have to do. Now, half a million people are killed. It's you know, one of the greatest slaughters um, in human history at that time, partly because they've invented the Gatling gun. Um, so it's a massive slaughter. Uh, but the moment they stop doing that, they can then turn further west and the, and, the, and the Indian wars really get underway again and they last for the next 30 years until Wounded Knee. In 1896, and the last of the of the tribes sign another one of these treaties, which of course are only written to be broken. Um, so you've got that level of violence going on. Uh, you've got the violence uh, that is still going in the South because when there was slavery, the the slave owners inflicted organised violence on the slaves. But once the slaves are well, a few years after they're freed and the North pulls back, what you get in the South is uh, lynch law. And so you've got the, the black slaves are still kept enslaved but free um, uh, as bonded labourers, in effect. Um, their rights to vote are taken away from them, everything. I mean, they just effectively... They're not chattel slaves anymore. You can't buy and sell them. Uh, but you own them because they're in debt to you, and you, you, if they, if they, if they get cheeky, if they get uppity, then you, then you string them up on a tree. So that was how labour relations were managed in the South, um, <laughs> and things weren't very different in other parts of the country. And they, all the big employers had their, their, their goon squads, um, sometimes organised in things like the uh, Pinkerton Detective Agency, uh, the state militia. Uh, would be used to do it. And it's interesting to think now we have these arguments about um, uh, you know, the right to bear arms. Well, that was a popular and democratic right when it was written into the Constitution to prevent there being a standing army to oppress the people. But the militia then becomes a part of the state apparatus and is then used to oppress the people. And the argument you know, now about well, everyone's got the right to bear arms, uh, this was in the days in which it was meant that the US was not to have a standing army. Well, I reckon it'd be a great idea if you could get rid of the US standing army uh, and let everyone bear arms. The world would be a lot happier place if you didn't have the US entire military war machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're a long way from there. Was it just the... Uh was it just the upper class who was considered as voters and people in at the time of the Constitution who were allowed well, to bear arms, or was it everybody? No, at the very beginning, there was uh, it was a uh, a property franchise hmm. that only property could be represented. Now that that begins to change. So and if only they were allowed to bear arms, and that'd be fair, wouldn't it? Well, it was in order to protect that. Hmm. Um, and but they were the amendments to the Constitution. The original Constitution was much more. Reactionary. Okay. It's only you get the ten, the free speech amendments and things. It is it is the radicals who introduce those as a, a slate called the Bill of Rights, and they're written in um, in seventeen ninety two, um, after the Constitution's up and up and going. So you've got this. You're in a very violent society um, in the United States, and they themselves, of course, have gone off and invaded the Philippines in. 1898, mass slaughter there. They get to the point where they kill anyone. They shoot any male over the age of 12 because the possibility that he might be capable of carrying an arm. Uh, they invade Cuba. Um, they, uh, by 1915, they're preparing when the time when Joe Hill's murdered. Um, they're preparing to invade Mexico again, uh, which they do the following year. This was one of the reasons why they can't get themselves into the European war as soon as they'd like to, because they've <laughs> got to get and take care of the revolution, suppress the revolution with Zapata and these people um, south of the border. So when we think of the IWW and Joe Hill as to whether he carried a gun, whether he might have killed somebody, this is a very violent society. I mean, the chances, if you're a union organiser, 
that someone will gun you down in the street you know, from behind are pretty high. So carrying a gun was not a sign that you were a violent person. It was a sign that probably everybody, was, as we know now in America, were carrying not bazookas and submachine guns like they do now, but carrying a revolver or something to protect themselves because the chances are that um, even in their ordinary daily activities, they would need to be able to do that. So we've got to remember what a truly violent society it was then as, to some extent, it's slightly less violent now, although that seems like a bizarre thing to say. Uh, but I think we've got to realise that um, that in, in terms of domestic politics and things, there was much more street violence and crowd violence and you know shooting down miners and shooting down workers at the GM and, fact- and Ford Motor Works and things. That was standard practice. Yeah, and I guess the old blues songs are a bit of a testament to that as well, aren't they? Certainly plenty of those. Right, and this, so- of course, is what George, if we get another plug, oh, yeah. will bring out because what he does in telling the story is to tell the story of the American labour movement and the, and the songs that he'll sing um, and the, the anecdotes that he'll tell are out at the tradies on Thursday the 19th at 7 o'clock um, and he really is a tonic. If you're feeling that the world of politics is going the way you don't want it to and you want a bit of be an uplift, George is just the man to give it to you. I mean, you'll come, well, it gets you singing, gets you feeling good, you know, part of that sense of solidarity and thing. And, you, you, you know, it's, it's, in, terms of, in terms of medicine, it's the best $20 you'll ever spend in your life. <laughs> Great. So what are the, what are the we, we've dealt a little bit with the condition. Well, no, we haven't really talked about it, have we? The, the conditions, we, we've dealt with the fact that these guys are itinerant and they're mm, working mm, from place mm, to place. And mm. Does that leave them a bit open to the boss's sort of whims? Well, certainly, unless they got organised. You know, I mean, this is, you know, the whole, you know, the whole point. Uh, that, and I mean, that was true uh, here in Australia. And I, I, mean, I mentioned I was going to tell you a story that my father told me. He was born in 1899, and in 1917, he was getting on to 18, and you know, he was, a, as he said, a skinny kid, and he was working in a tannery as a labourer. But he was only strong enough to pull the hides away from the pits and spread them out to dry. He, 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 later, he was actually big and strong, and he worked in the pit, a terrible bloody job, awful, one of the worst jobs you could have. Um, but at that stage, he wasn't doing that. Now, when the war broke out, the blokes who'd worked in the pit, and I'll give you some idea, you're up, you're up to your thighs, you know, your crutch in, in, in brine and muck and stuff. And he, I remember as a kid when he was doing this, he had dermatitis all over his hands. He'd put zinc cream all over his hands. My mother made calico gloves and he put those on and then he'd put the rubber gloves on. But none of that actually stopped this dermatitis. Now, that was, they were the conditions that people were. And they, in those days, of course, they were working 10 or 12 hours a day. It wasn't an eight-hour day in those sorts of places. That, you know, that came later. And so they needed big, strong blokes to go down into the pit to pull these hides because they're, you know, they're steer hides. They're big, heavy, and they're full of brine, so they're twice their weight. They've got to drag them across and then fling them out of the pit onto the side, and then skinny kids like my dad can pull them away out of the, the field to dry. And needless to say, when war broke out and they offered blokes you know, two and six a day to have a trip overseas, a lot of these blokes are said, it can't be as bad as this. <laughs> so they were, they were really short of blokes to work in that part of the town. The other parts of the town, of course, are quite skilled. Um, uh, but in that part, there was, they were always looking for, for big, hefty blokes to go in. And this day in 1917, this big Swedish sailor turned up and applied for work. And the foremen who were employed to knock men down, that was how you kept discipline in these areas. I mean, the foreman was a big, strong bloke and his job was to make sure that no one got out of line and if they did, he could thump them. <laughs> so he looks at this big Swedish sailor who turns up and, you know, says all these Christmases have come at once. So he says, right, you're hired, you work in the pit. So the bloke gets in the pit, starts to work, but at half the pace of everybody else. 
and the foreman standing on the side and shouting abuse at him. Uh, and he continues to work at half the pace. Now, the word spreads around the tannery of what's going to happen, and there's a boot factory next door as well. They you know, take it straight out and integrate it works. And they know that at 12 o'clock when the whistle goes, there'll be a stand-up roar. So the word spreads. Um, the, the foreman won't stop, stop it because he doesn't want to disrupt the whole thing while the other blokes are working. So he's got to wait till 12 o'clock. He's standing there still abusing the bloke. Everyone's gathered. There's about a 1,000 blokes around watching. And the Swedish sailor gets out of the pit and, as my father put it, walked across to the foreman and King hit him. <laughs> turned around and said, I'm from the industrial workers of the world. <laughs> this is how you treat the bosses. You blokes get organised and walked out the gate. Now, this, the Wobblies, the IWW called Propaganda by Deed. And my father said it really was because he and those other blokes, they'd never seen anyone stand up to a boss. It just You just didn't do it. Um, so that this, within a year or two, they'd formed a union. Um, now, you've got to remember, of course, that 1917, the year of the Russian Revolution, the big conscription battles around Australia, there's a growing but small anti-war movement, there's the most radical government in Queensland that Australia's ever had. So the environment's there as well. It's not just that one bloke walks in off the street and punches a foreman and suddenly you form a trade union. It's, all, it's harder than that. Uh, but that's the kind of thing they did. So they showed people that they could actually look after themselves. Now, as I said, you then had to get other blokes to stay there and to organise and to do all that hard yakker and, and be prepared to stick their heads up um, and have them cracked as well. But they were able to able to do this and to form the union. But the spark of it was this Joe Hill type figure. You know, I mean it could have been Joe Hill himself. You know, <laughs> From you know, the right part of the world. The right part of the world and carrying these 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 real attitudes as to as to how you did it. Yeah, right. So I guess that really is what Joe Hill is sort of famous for, isn't it? It's that communication of of the ideas through yeah. his through his songs. So I mean, action. And, yeah. and in Australia, I mean, because the IWW form here quite early on, um, and they're very active. And not only are they active in that kind of way, they there are free speech fights uh, as to whether you're allowed to just on a Sunday night in the corner somewhere in Fitzroy get a soapbox and stand up and start sprouting socialist propaganda. Uh, and the, the authority said, no, you're not. And the Wobblies and a few others, uh, their view was, well, the solution to this problem is to fill the jails. Um, so that you put the soapbox up, one bloke gets up and says, you know, what his name is and he's here to speak, and the police pull him down, you put the next one up. So <laughs> that, you know, you just keep, you've got enough blokes in line to go up and to do this. And as I said, you know, in parts of Canada in winter, yeah, to be put in jail. I'm sort of up for that. Uh, but it, it, it was propaganda by deed again. And eventually here they got the right to free speech you know, before the First World War. And then they were caught. They'd been opposing conscription. They'd been opposing... Um, and we didn't have conscription at that stage for overseas military service. It was just to be training here. Um, so they, they led a lot of those sorts of campaigns and they did them not by putting out leaflets, but by actually propaganda by deed, by actually doing these things of, as I say, you know, getting up on the platform and being prepared to go to jail. There was, uh, I knew an old wobbly in Queensland who lived just down the road from our place. He was, when I first met him, when I was a teenager, he was still a Labor senator. He'd been elected in 1932. Um, he'd, he was a Scot. He'd gone through Canada. He'd been in jail several times in Canada. He told a great story about how they asked him what his religion was. And he said he'd just been reading this book called Philosophical Monism. <laughs> and they asked him what he said, no, he's a philosophical monist. <laughs> and the, the jailer, of course, couldn't spell philosophical. So he said, he wrote down I was a pagan. <laughs> uh, so in typically, whenever, as Gordon told the story, he said, whenever I was asked knowing, you know, people tried to embarrass me by saying what my religion was. You know, I was an atheist. You know, I'd tell this joke. And 
using the joke, would deflect the whole argument. And that's the other thing the Wobblies were really great at. It's a great thing George Mann is great at, is, is getting humour into these stories so that you've got, and I think this is the big political lesson in any activity, is A, you need anecdotes, stories that people can take away and tell other people. As a union official said to me, he said, look, what I want the bloke to read this story and to, th- and to think, I could do that. You're not special. The sort of thing these blokes did 100 years ago, I could do that. That's the kind of thing I can do. So you need those sort of stories and stories that people can repeat to other people. You know, oh, I heard a great story. And the best stories we do that with the jokes. You know? uh, so politically, the politically powerful joke um, you know, is, is the thing that's going to circulate. I mean, you might have the most marvellous philosophical understanding of something and you can explain this to one person and they'll say, oh, yeah, well, that's interesting, I understand that. But how many more people are they going to pass it on to? But <laughs> if, you've right. got, if you've got a good anecdote uh, and you've got a joke to go with it you know, and you can tell it as a joke, then it's going to spread and people will find it much more acceptable. Like an early form of going viral, really, isn't well, it? Well, that's well. We know this about jokes. I mean, I mean, political jokes just get recycled. You know, every time there's a new prime minister, the <laughs> jokes come around with a slight variation on them to fit into who this new political figure on the on the landscape has become. So, so this is Joe Hill. He's he's uh, he's travelling around the land. He's, mm-hmm. he's writing songs and telling stories oh, yes, in yeah. a humorous fashion Indeed, about these yes, deadly yes. serious things yeah, and. Yeah. Um, Who's he fighting against? Who's the opposition at this point? Well, a big capital. Big capital. Big capital. And they are big. You know, I mean, there's, you know, a Rockefeller and Standard Oil, um, uh, of whom it was said Standard Oil did everything to the legislature of Pennsylvania except refine it. There's the corruption all through the political system. And and, uh, and so they were fighting, fighting them. Um, they were... As I say, they were you know battling against the railroads and the and the silos and the and the banks, of course. There's a big movement in America to get off the gold standard. Uh, you know, William Jennings Bryant, who's the Democratic candidate in eighteen ninety six, makes this famous speech called "They have crucified my people on a cross of gold," uh, and to take power away from the moneyed Eastern interests, as as they saw it. Um, you know, the big banks like. J.P. Morgan and things, uh, who reorganised... I mean, there was this phrase called Morganisation, <laughs> you know, where you, you, you know, Morgan and the bank came in and reorganised how the corporation worked. So you've got, you know, you've got those, you've got um, um, DuPont's as the chemical firm who are also supplying fertiliser, so they relate back to the to the agricultural parts of the country as well. And there's much bigger proportion, of course, people on the land in those days um, than there were, you know, after the Second World War. So there the, it's, it is, in a sense, what we would now call the 1%. Um, you know, that, that they're still the same 1%, of course. Uh, they're, they're the direct descendants of... And, and some of the firms are still there. Absolutely. There's still rich Rockefellers around yeah, the place. Oh, and should, yeah. Many of those, I imagine. Yeah. When I was in New York, we were going up to um, the Rockefeller Museum up in the one end of Manhattan. And one of the local said to me, he said, you visit the Rockefellers, carry a gun. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the attitude of it because, you know, they'd shoot you down. Yeah, um, right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Tough so that, characters. That was that sort of folk memory. Of, of of what the Rockefellers really represented. And I suppose this all really is a continuation of the empire that came across with the uh, with the English. Well, they built their new empire, of course. You know, I mean, they break out of the, uh, you know, I mean, that's what the revolution's about. Mm. They break away from that. And then there's an anti-imperial movement. I mean, there's quite a strong group amongst them who say, we don't want to be like that. Uh, and then, however... Well, their first imperial movement, of course, is to take over the North American continent. That's what they do first. Uh, they want to go into Canada. Um, they want to, well, they go into Mexico in the 1830s and, you know, um, controlling the south is part of that empire. Uh, and then the movement west, uh, building the railroad across, the destruction of the, of the Amerindians, uh, all of that. So they build the empire in the north first. And no sooner have they done that, of course, 
in the 1890s and they're immediately across the Pacific. Uh, well, they're already into China. Uh, and they break into Japan. They invade Japan in 1857, something they conveniently forget when they talk about Pearl Harbor. Um, and then they take over Hawaii, uh, get rid of the Queen, um, go into the Philippines, go into Cuba. So they build they build a, a monopoly empire, whereas the previous empire was a kind of free trade empire. So the the structure of capitalism has changed from what it was a hundred years before. So these are the these are the monopolizers who form their kind of empire and their kind of state and and their army and their and their forces to go with it. Never stopped either. How and many how no many world. bases do we have from the U.S. around the world now? It's a... Well, they can't afford to stop. You know, in their <laughs> interest. You know, they you know they can't say, oh well, you know, oh well, you know, this is as far as we need to go, um, in order to. They want to stay where they are. They've got to keep. They've got to keep expanding, and you know, it's not a choice they get. Yeah, yeah. So we've got um, we've got a bunch of people who are basically getting farmed by these these yeah, corporate people, yeah, and yeah. Uh, it's still the case. And what what really keeps us working, despite sort of it being fairly obvious that <laughs> we're being farmed, if you look at yeah, it. Yeah. But what is it that that keeps the well, system running and stops us from standing well, up? Well, the first thing is that every day you've got to put food on the table. That's the great advantage that they have over us. Um, every day we go to work and add more value for them so that they get richer. Because if we don't, um, you know, the, uh, you know in, the, in the narrower sense of providing all the things we need, there's no food on the table. Now, what we do know, of course, is that there gets a point in which people say enough's enough and even though there's not going to be any food on the table and we're going to starve and we're going to be on strike for a long time and some of those strikes go for 21 months or something, you know, and they're really, really doing it hard, um, people do stand up and, and get organised about it. But it, I mean, that's the first thing. It's this, this you know, the simple economic fact that the only thing that workers have got is their ability is is our ability to sell our labour power to somebody else? You know, you know that, that that we don't own factories, we don't own the things that could keep ourselves. We don't, by and large, own farms and things. So we we have to sell our labour power. So that's the first big advantage. The second advantage, of course, that they have and we don't, um, is the machinery of the state. Uh, so that you know, if you if you misbehave, of course, in some parts of the world, they shoot you down. You know, and if you try and form a trade union in many parts of Latin America, you know, they'll they'll come and take a pot shot at your house on the first day, and if you keep at it, they'll rape your daughter the second day, and the third day they'll kill your son, on the fourth day they'll kill you. You know, I mean, you're not a union official you know, in any big sense. You're just the local bloke who's trying to organise another hundred workers. Um, so that's the extreme version of that violence, but that is that works everywhere that what the state does is to put it very simply it organizes capital and disorganizes labor uh, and one of the ways it will disorganize labor is sometimes to organize it so they'll channel it into the kind of you know into the awu or into the arbitration system or those things so and by the, making a contract with the union or yeah, an arbitration oh, yeah. as yeah, you yeah, said yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's the other great advantage they have that they have this, they have this state apparatus. But of course, again, like the industrial economic area of it, they don't have it all their own way. The state is just not their thing. It's an area in which conflict takes place. And the better organised we are, the more we can push against them, and we can get bits of the state on various times to do things that make things a bit better for the majority of people. You know, I mean, you know, the fact that we've got any kind of um, government medical system in Australia is a result of people organising. I mean, it's a you know, it's a pretty terrible system in terms of what it could and should do, but it's better than the United States, you know, where where that argument was lost and defeated, and, and even now is being pushed back. But you know, where the working class movement got really organised, say in in England after the war, when the when the troops came back. I mean, they were frightened that these blokes now had their guns and they'd been taught how to use them. Because when when Churchill tried to get 
I mean, Churchill's plan was to invade the Soviet Union on the 1st of July 1945. Um, and the general said, if you do that, you'll have a revolution. I mean, these blokes are not going to go and fight the Soviet Union, you know, particularly if you get 100,000 German troops to go with them, which is what he wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> so he had to stop doing that. But part of it was that in order that they knew that the troops did not were not going to be sold down the river again. So you've got a national health scheme, you've got a housing... So the state became, as it always is, an area of conflict. And if you're organised and you push then you can get something out of it. There's wonderful old uh, economist, Joan Robinson, who ha- used to have this question she'd put. You know, what determines the level of your wages? The answer, the relative strength of the contending classes. So that if, if the bosses are better organised than you, then they'll push your wages down. And being organised means industrially, politically, culturally, so that you know, events like this concert, you know, the getting those songs out, getting people to have a sense of, of class history and memory and what we can do, this is all part of the class struggle. And it's part of what determines the level of your wages. Um, because if, if, if you're completely disorganised, if everything's been you know, broken up and you don't have any sense that you can achieve anything, it's all lost and you've been defeated, then they can just write over the top of you. But the more organised you are, the more you can push back on any any kind of area at all. And we've seen it, you know, we can see it now with the Lock the Gate movement. You know? I, mean, I mean, what would they have done if there hadn't been any opposition? Well. We know that. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's, that's true of anything. So, yes, we can't instantly close down all of the carbon-polluting industries in the country, but the amount of organisation that has gone into that and people just say, I'm not going to put up with this, uh, has meant that they have had to... Yeah, they've had to. They've got to. They've had to be nice. They've had to negotiate. They've had to say, "Oh well, you know, let's talk about this." Whereas previously, they'd have just sent the bulldozer in. Is the IWW at this point fairly new? They've been going for ten, twenty years. Or? Oh well, now when in in Joe's case, yes, uh, around Joe's a bit time. Uh, about twelve years. About I mean, twelve around years, the turn okay. of the century. And what so, about the rest of the union movement? Was that fledgling or? Oh uh, well. E- the craft unions were often very strong. Um, and the women had got organised, of course, in the big uh, cotton mills in the northeast. Um, and one of the songs that uh, I was singing is, um, you know, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. You know, <laughs> I, you know I, um, um, I am a union maid and I never am afraid. Um, <laughs> you know, and so sections of the women and the, gar- the women, ladies' garment workers' union um, in New York, in the sweatshops, they're getting organised. And the, even in the South at this stage, um, white workers and black workers um, are forming unions together. Now, that gets broken up after, for obvious reasons after mm-hmm. about 1908 because their power in the South depends upon turning the white workers, the poor white trash as they see it, against the bonded black labour so they're very concerned to make sure that that alliance doesn't survive. Uh, although a lot of the people who build the movement um, for black liberation uh, in the South are those union organisers who go down in the 20s and 30s. Um, it's the basically organised by the by the Communist Party um, in the United States who go down there and and get organised in the black way. And, you know, the most famous of these, in a way, in terms of Joe Hill, of course, is is Paul Robeson, who, when he comes to Australia in 1960, gives a concert on the the foundations of the Opera House. The first performance on site (laughs) is Robeson comes, the unions bring him on, and he sings, I dreamt I saw Joe Hill last night. There's a recording of, you go online... Uh, you just, you know, Robeson at the Opera House, there's this voice of him singing, um, I dreamt I saw Joe Hill last night. So that sense of, of, of other sections of the labour movement certainly getting, getting organised, um, some of the seamen, some of the, um, uh, the wharf labourers uh, over there. In fact, Harry Bridges, an Australian, goes over and become secretary of the Longshoremen's Union on the West Coast. 
and the, the US state spend their, the next 40 years trying to deport him back to Australia. <laughs> uh, but because of his strength that he's built in the union and the movement and things, um, they, aren't, um, they actually aren't able to do this. Yeah, now you mentioned the eight-hour day. Mm. Um, what are the other the really big sort of wins that the union movement has, has managed to, to snatch from the jaws of the bosses over the years? Well, I have to say that having got the eight-hour day, they then had to defend it because the moment they had the eight-hour day, the boss said, oh, okay, we'll have speed-ups. Um, we'll make you work harder and faster within the eight hours. So we'll get as much out of you in eight hours as we got out of you at 10 or 12. So that's the first thing you've got to... Productivity drives. The productivity <laughs> drive is always there because productivity is just another name for profitability. Uh, so that's the first thing that they, they then set out to do. Um, they also, and I, I mean, I'm, this is giving the opposite answer to the question you asked, uh, it was the, the stonemasons, the highly skilled stonemasons who were the first ones in Victoria to get it. They just abolished stonemasonry over the next 30 years. You know, they were replaced by brickwork. Uh, okay, you know, we can get cheaper labour and unskilled labour. Uh, you need a few stonemasons for very special work, but, you know, we solve this problem. We just, we just change the whole way in which the work is actually performed. So Thinking outside of the blocks, eh? Yeah. Well, you've always got to remember what an old wobbly in Canada said on his 90th birthday. This young bloke goes off to interview him for radical paper. And at the end of the interview, he said, oh, so, so you're in it for the long haul, are you? No, says the old bloke. I'm in it for the endless haul. <laughs> the endless haul. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it's another aspect of uh, the funny thing about technology, whereas you, you build more stuff, you've then got to maintain it all. And the more you build, the more you have to maintain. So I guess the more wins that you have in yeah, yeah. against these guys, yeah, the more yeah, you'll yeah. have to do maintenance on, on your rights oh, yeah, as well, yeah. I suppose. And as I say, they change the rules of the game. Yeah. You know, if you think we won on this, everything has to be defended and rethought out and, you, and you've got to think, because they're thinking ahead of the game all the time because they know it's going to change because they're suffering from competition. It's not just the workers who are screwing them. Other, other bosses are screwing bosses. So they've got to protect themselves from the other big corporations. I mean, you know, we mentioned Coke and Pepsi before. You know, um, they are fighting each other all the time. Uh, and they've got to think one step ahead of that. And part of what they're doing is thinking, how can we get rid of as much labour cost out of this as we possibly can? So the competition between the big corporations is also very much linked into how they're going to screw their workers. So these are the kinds of issues that the, that the Wobblies brought to people's attention. Uh, they're the kinds of issues that, you know, that George Mann and his concert uh, brings out... Um, makes it very clear, makes it very human, very much uh, a real story, not, not, not abstractions. Um, and as I say, you know, if you get along on Thursday the 19th out to the Woden Tradies at 7 o'clock, you'll have the best two or three hours you've had in a very long time. You'll come away really stirred and cheered up. Rightio. Well, uh, Humphrey McQueen, thank you very much. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Oh, no, I think we, you know, I mean, there's endless, you know, <laughs> more anecdotes and stories and things you could always tell. But I think we've, we might say that as Harry Bridges said, we've covered the waterfront. Reasonably well. Okay, thank you very much. My pleasure, Scotty.